do we consider these big platforms tech companies or are they actually media companies? Hello listeners, I am your host Ziad Matar and I'd like to welcome you all to the Wirelessly Yours podcast where I talk about everything tech, business and design. On each episode, I will take you through how cutting-edge technologies, emerging business models and the latest design trends are transforming our world and shaping the future. You will also get to hear from my guests about their opinions on global developments and the opportunities they create, as well as their impact on society. Stay tuned for more. Wirelessly Yours. Hello, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to the Wirelessly Yours podcast, my discussion about all things tech, business and design. And today we're going to talk about an interesting topic uh, that uh, you know came to my mind when I was watching The Social Dilemma, uh, a new Netflix uh, documentary or docu- docudrama as they call them, who's been making really a lot of uh, noise uh, uh, online across viewers. And in the film, uh, you know, we talk, we see how uh, companies and big platforms like Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter and others uh, are transformed to to more than you know social networks that connect friends and, and family together uh, for sharing user generated content or updating each other and and look more at uh, you know harvesting all of this data uh, that is being used to uh, to basically serve us as users advertisement and content and news that uh, suits our interests. Uh, in, in the social dilemma, we see uh, you know, how, uh, how the hopes of creating better technology that helps humanity is now becoming uh, uh, this dilemma between uh, uh, for, for the founders, uh, are we doing good or are we being a commercial and, uh, and uh, these algorithms that are behind uh, all of these uh, companies are harvesting this data and then serving it. Uh, as a product for advertisers and other maybe uh, sources of influence to the end users. Uh, Today I'm your host and I'm joined uh, by two wonderful ladies uh, who will discuss with me all issues around personal data, privacy, uh, concerns and commercializations around them. Uh, first and foremost, uh, Isabella Demichelis, Demichelis uh, founder and CEO of Ernie App and a very good friend and former colleague from uh, the time I spent in Qualcomm. And uh, TJ, TJ Lightwala, Managing Director of Accenture Interactive for the MENA region and a fellow Thai Dubai Charter member. Please join me in giving them both a very warm virtual round of applause. Welcome, ladies. Um, Let's talk a little bit uh, about uh, about ourselves here, about yourselves. This is the first time you meet together, so it's a great opportunity for also for you to introduce yourself to each other and to our uh, dear listeners. Please go ahead. Let's start with uh, with you, TJ, since you're not on mute. Okay. Hi, hi everyone. It's really lovely to be here, Zia. Thank you for inviting me. It's uh, indeed a provocative topic, and uh, I'm quite excited to have a tête-à-tête with all two of you today. Um, I lead Accenture Interactive Marketing Services business in the region and uh, have been in the digital marketing space for a very, very long time. I will avoid dating myself now. Uh, however, you know, fair to say that uh, the, the area keeps me very um, on my toes and well informed on the dynamism of digital transformation, the technologies that we're working around, the idea of data and how we use it very often from the marketing perspective. So. 
uh, excited to be here. And uh, obviously, Sai has brought so many interesting forums together uh, with you, Ziad, and uh, I'm uh, really looking forward to today's conversation. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, Thai and what we do there, uh, but let's hear from Isa about uh, her story and her background. Welcome, Isa. Thank you, Ziad, and uh, I'm myself very happy to be here. I think that um, it's great to have these tools that allows people to connect, and it connects pretty much what the social dilemma is about. Technology, is it good or is it bad? I think that fundamentally it's a good thing. I've been uh, involved in technology um, for the last basically 25 years of my career, working first in Europe and then for Californian technology companies. I've always been at the cornerstone between regulatory and technologies, market access and issues related to the introduction of new technologies. And never like before, we have to put ourselves the right questions as, are we doing the right thing? And uh, who are we deciding if we're doing the right thing? I think there is a real collective need for all of us to participate in this thinking. And this initiative, which you have promoted, and any other that will um, be created by anyone who has ideas as how to face the next big wave of creation on digital and in the connected society and in the future of our economy is all meritful and should be promoted and diffused and disseminated as a fundamental responsibility that all of us have. So I'm looking forward to this conversation and looking forward also the interaction with the users, which I hope will be rich. Today Back we're, to you. We're going, uh, today we're going live on LinkedIn actually, so I hope we have a few uh, listeners live in addition to those who will listen to us later uh, as a podcast episode. So from now I, I address them and say please prepare to uh, you know send us your questions. Uh, uh, in the comments section and we will answer them later during the show. Um, but let's talk about what I like to call nowadays the elephant in the Zoom. And uh, because most of our life is happening over uh, some form of Zoom calls, uh, it's become a generic name. And, uh, you know, the, the, the most interesting, uh, you know, uh, uh, conversation or, or discussion I got from the movie is really, do we consider these big platforms, tech companies, or are they actually media companies? And I think this is one of the biggest uh, gray areas that, uh, that, in fact, they are having a big fight on uh, in the US because if they are considered as media companies, then they are subject to certain laws, whereas if they are considered tech companies, then they are uh, you know, subject to other kinds of uh, laws and regulations. So perhaps I start with you, Isabella, since you are our regulatory and government affair experts and uh, get your opinion perhaps maybe also more from a European perspective. Sure. The question is very big um, and it's a very challenging thing to give an answer that it's going to stay for longer than 24 hours. I think that the best way to look at it, it's really not to use the old paradigms, whether it is or it's not a media company or whether it is a regulated or a non-regulated sector. I think that the challenges we're facing, it's prominently because these digital platforms, which I have a quite passion for the definition that the Europeans have tried to come up, which is digital platforms. Um, so there is an infrastructure behind a digital platform. It's not just about a digital ID and no one knows what's running in the cloud. I mean, cloud is a very nice marketing wording, but there is an infrastructure on the cloud, right? It's like when we talk about telecom operators, there are pipes, there, are, there is infrastructure. So the, the digital platforms requires 
a different view as how they could be seen and how they potentially could be watched after, depending very much on the scale at which they operate, much more than what is the business model, much more as what it is their um, specific uh, core business before they extend their core business to other side businesses that allows them to grow at a much faster space than anyone else because they reach to consumers, they reach to users. They have a direct engagement of users in, in, in a way that is so incredibly instant and so incredibly pervasive that it is even more than what traditional media could do because you needed to be in front of the television to be influenced by the television. So the old regulation of the how the television regulates content doesn't really apply to someone who has a phone in his hand every moment of its day. So should we regulate phones? No, come on, we shouldn't be regulating phones because it's just a medium to reach people. However, it is indeed relevant that if the phone is the medium through which this application gets in the hands of people, you would want to put yourself some questions about what's the relevance of thinking about smartphones versus set of boxes versus other connected devices. So I'll, I'll stop there by saying Europeans have done a significant step forward, calling it these platforms digital platforms. They haven't yet defined what the rules are going to be because they are consulting. And at this moment, there are some companies that are a little bit anxious to be too much regulated and others who are very much in love that their competitors are going to be regulated. So we go back to business. We need to talk about business for being sure to fit the right regulatory scheme into companies. Perfect timing and uh, entry for uh, TJ uh, because TJ's business, you know, as head of interactive as extension, is exactly about using these digital platforms for the service of your customers, your clients, and ultimately, you know, uh, maybe we'll talk about that later. The end user is quite enjoying it, so we will talk about the role of the end user again at the end of this discussion, maybe. But TJ, give us your business perspective on this matter. Yeah, so I believe. Uh... First of all, you know, consumers are in the space uh, of consumption. Uh, there is a customer centricity around why we are in front of certain medias and media types. Either we are researching information, we have the ability to buy in, buy a different products and tools, or we're simply online getting entertained by the videos that we watch or the content that we watch. So there is a reason for us to be in front of screens. Uh, and that's the role of media, to pass the message, to entertain, to provide value in form, in form of content. Uh, what I believe that the role of technology is, and it's not a one way or the other answer, it's uh, what is the role of technology in powering up the role of media and content. And for me, the way I see it from a very business-centric uh, point of view is that technology provides certain tools and enabling um, codes that help uh, discern what the user has the propensity to consume. And uh, you click on the channels, on certain channels of certain times to watch certain, uh, certain content. You're on Facebook and social media, uh, you're digesting this information based on your interests or based on your past interests or based on your friends' interests who you have befriended or their interests. And therefore, there is this um, understanding of a 
sort of a correlated system in which we are able to scientifically discern uh, what the user will want to see at a given point in time. And I believe that's the role of technology or the power of automation and artificial intelligence in a way the machine learns what the person behind the computer or the person behind the screen has the you know propensity to consume. So I do believe there's a role of media and I do be believe there's a role of technology in the way businesses are shaped to bring the best value to the consumer from a business point of view. Um, from an advertising angle, I think it's really important to understand that there is an economic value uh, from the provision of certain content. And that economic value is uh, passed on to um, the, the, the viewer is free because advertising is, is, is paid by the advertiser, be it a big brand, uh, you know, be it P&G or Unilever or a large mobile company or mobile provider. They are advertising certain things based on what they believe targeted contextualized messaging to that user at that particular time to make the content free. So there is value in so systematic exchange of both economics and value creation for the user. And to me, that's the equation that's at question potentially. And this is where the user comes in. And what I wanted to, to talk about here is that definitely as a user, I think we get I mean, there is a, I always say in entrepreneur cycle circles or whenever we're talking to a startup who's pitching, like what burning need are you solving for the user uh, so that they download and use your, uh, your product, your app, your service. And of course, whether it's Instagram, Twitter, Facebook or TikTok or anything else, we are downloading these apps, we are using them, we are enjoying them. There's definitely a big, uh, big uh, role we are playing. Yet, are we playing a role in deciding how our data being is being used, how it is being monetized. I know, uh, I know you have a lot of thoughts on that, uh, Isabella. Maybe you want to start with this. Thank you, Ziad. We have um, we have very very strong ideas about how resolve this very difficult equation, where the parties to the equation up to now have always been the companies. We talk about the brands. We talk about the uh, platforms and we talk about all those intermediaries that are between the brands and the platforms that are involved for example in the use case of the advertisement programmatic retargeting there are great companies that have really really scaled up significantly because they are essentially serving advertisement um, two-sided market uh, platforms provide audience and profiling and uh, brands put the budget for the advertisement to be served on a targeted basis. We see it a little bit broader. That's the tip of the iceberg. The use case of advertisement is really maybe the most known, but certainly not the most valuable. Though everybody thinks that the most of the money goes into digital advertisement, the use of data and the monetization of data exceeds far beyond what the use case of the advertisement is. And this is where it's earning up about. I have to say that when we started our adventure back a couple of years ago, earning app was a project and then it turned into a company which released an application which is giving to users a right to make a choice, which we are fundamentally believer it's gonna be very positive for the companies as well. What is this choice about? 
the choice to decide how their data are going to be used on the basis of property rights, which, which it's not just giving the right to someone to use their data, but put conditions associated with the usage of those data. I will make an example later on. I don't want to hijack the session, but it's an important point that I would like to stress. Because the users are so valuable and so important in the creation of the digital value, it's not by just justifying that the service is free that they are paid back for accessing a free service. Because the reality of how the technology works is that even when the users pay for the service, they are exploited. It doesn't mean that because it's advertised and it's that use case that the users are not doing what it's called in the regulatory environment, implicit work. The value is not the geolocation data. The value comes from the rights of use to use that geolocation in an algorithm. So it's about a right, a pass-through rights, not a data per se. The geolocation in itself may not have any value, but that data associated with the commuting history and the permission to use it for targeting and retargeting, that has a value. And if and the user are not explained that difference, they can be empowered on privacy, but they cannot be empowered on monetization and it's going to be missing in the equation how they can contribute. So I, I asked DJ from uh, the, 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 the corporate perspective and uh, the companies that, that, uh, that you are working with um, at the end of the day also want to be seen in a favorable way by the users and they are not the platforms themselves. They are products or services that are promoting themselves across the platforms. We'll talk about ideas as well uh, maybe in the next section. Um, and what I have seen, Isabella also feel free to, you know, uh, correct me here if I'm wrong, uh, in the last two, three years is, you know, we just annoying banners where I just click that I accept the fact that I have cookies. And, you know, you know whenever I'm trying to see an actual brand's page or an actual proper, uh, you know, media company's, uh, you know, news uh, feed or whatever, I'm still exposed to this rather annoying, uh, item which I end up clicking anyway without looking at because I really want to get to where I want. So how do you see clients uh, working around this, uh, TJ, and what is the hope from, from you know, the corporate uh, companies that you work with in that direction? Yeah, so I'll, I'll provide a very specific answer to this because I think it's very, <clears throat> it's, it's uh, very important and critical that because a lot of advertisers in the space right now are working with uh, their data and you know especially after the the google you know, the, the death of the cookie there's even a bigger conversation on what's going to happen in the post cookie world um, on how data is going to be used systematically and what kind of regulations and privacy uh, policies and guidelines are going to be put in place by companies and lawmakers to help against customer data and privacy concerns. So to address that, what uh, we are doing today, and it's an evolutionary process, what we do today is only going to evolve over the course of the next uh, two to three years, especially where we live in our ecosystem right now in our region, the development of such laws are just coming. So we are very much focused on a couple of 
a couple of key points. One is alignment uh, with uh, the GDPR laws and the guidelines that follow through coming from the UK, protecting the UK citizens and the UK residents on their cookie protection and policies of how we can market to them or message to them. Uh, second is, and again, in alignment with the California protection law on data, uh, consumer protection law on data and privacies of settings of how you can uh, how you can message to different uh, audiences in different different tenures and how companies can use that data over time. Now, bringing those two laws into the region, it's really important. And brands are extremely conscious and cognizant these days on how they're going to be able to market not only to the customers who opted in, uh, but also making sure that those uh, uh, permissions continue to stay current and refreshed. So there is... Um, a host of guidelines that we're using in terms of consent management platforms, the ability to segment those cookies into profiling of cookies in terms of permissions and opt-ins and opt-outs, depending on the channel that we are. And I, I am in no way going to go into exhaustive details around this, but these two areas using consent management platforms and the ability to opt-in and opt-out, depending on the type of profiles that you are collecting and you're checking off while you're browsing, helps the marketers uh, create a sort of a consent or you don't consent as and you don't click on it and you don't maneuver through it. Um, and those are uh, my question is, uh, my question also is a bit, a bit because we, I had a, the last podcast uh, I recorded last week was uh, about uh, user experience. And, and you know, uh, right now it seems like just uh, one more step in the user experience and that's it. Like you're forcing mm -hmm. users to do something really uh, unu uh, unuseful. Uh, and, and, and we're moving beyond that. Have you uh, managed to find interesting ways to integrate that uh, type of concept, uh, consent, uh, sorry, in, in a seamless way in the experience and keep this convenience and this pleasant and delightful uh, way of uh, you know, interacting with these brands without just having to you know, click on a box and move on? Yeah, I mean, this is really important, right? Like, I mean, I don't know if you have been to a, a brand new website, which you've never been to before. The first thing that shows up is a very easy to use. And I, I, told, I totally believe in fluidity of experiences. Uh, you know, user experience is really important to us. The way customers maneuver through different types of patterns are very important. It has to be seamless and fluid and easy for them and quick and, you know, uh, uh, for them to move forward with it. For us, it's really important that the entire usability of the customer journey is maintained throughout the process. It has to be uh, it, it has to be uh, small enough and unassuming enough, but enough to give you the terms and conditions. In certain sites, the terms and conditions are highlighted only on the power footer, and that's enough because you're still communicating to the to the customer viewing what it is on different screens which are adapted to the tablets or mobile phones uh it, there's a very small tnc at the bottom of the power footer sometimes when you have user experience that's transferring through parallax screens you know you see the motion activated screens moving you don't actually see pages you're you're just scrolling down an endless page and in that, you know, you'll see the you you'll see the options come out of the side, or and they'll disappear the minute they've visually recognized it. So there are so many interesting formats in which you can align with the design to 
to have it be extremely streamlined and in alignment with the consumer journey that this is almost mission critical to our path to uh, success when we are looking at design development and consumer attention uh, in, um, in making it frictionless in their journey. In a few months or a year, maybe we'll do another session where we talk about non-visual interfaces, not non-screen, because then, you know, internet of everything and 5G, there's not even a screen anymore. But Isa, so the, going back on this point, and then I will elaborate a little bit more. Really, uh, is that was that the intention of the, yes. of, of the um, whole regulation, is that we, we just put an annoying banner and then we click on it and we move on? Is that really enough to satisfy the need of uh, GDPR and other uh, similar regulations? Let me let me be very, very clear. You know, lawyers and regulators, when they write laws, they think of very broad, important principle. And we should not forget GDPR is about a fundamental law, uh, which is um, non-commercial law, is fundamental law. That means that it's much more important than any other law. And what that, that law really says, GDPR, it doesn't explain if it is a cookie yes or a cookie no. It doesn't say if it's a banner or not a banner, a firewall or a consent manager. It doesn't go into that level, but it says one very foundational thing. It says no one can be prevented from exercising its privacy rights. And that is something that it's very, very often misunderstood by companies. Companies look at GDPR as compliance. If they were looking at GDPR as a marketing loyalty program, they would understand that winning the persistence of opt-in, it's nothing different from like putting discounts in shops where you walk in back because you're happy with paying less for a good product. It's nothing different, it's marketing. But it's been twisted in a way that it has forced to companies to rethink completely their compliance program. And they fell in the trap of spending a lot of money to understand how work around transparency because they are afraid that if they are transparent with the users, the users will deny their consent. That's a wrong, wrong, wrong approach to it. What the legislator in Europe wanted is that no one as a user should be prevented from expressing a choice. And once the tool of the choice is in front of him, to have that choice to be easy to give and easy to revoke. So the most important article of GDPR that translates into privacy design, usability, frictionless experience is the article 6A. 6A says that to express your choices for a privacy preference, you should be given four clicks, one to opt in, one to opt out, one to delete your data, and one to transfer your data now, after three years working in this space, I can tell you that there is not one single company in the world which is compliant with this law. And for those who are interested to trying our app in terms of usability and design, you will discover by looking into each one of these services that at most, Google has three clicks, opt-in, opt-out, and delete, but not transfer. If you go on our friends at LinkedIn, they have even less. They cannot let people delete their data because they want to keep the data of the people. So even LinkedIn is not compliant with GDPR. And why I'm insisting on the design point and on the user empowerment and how to make it simple for people to understand what happens with their data, including the non-personal data. 
is because if the design at the web and mobile screen level, it's simplified to be as simple as the traffic light, everybody would know to whom you give the consent, to whom you don't give it ever, and to whom you will give it always, because you will trust the one who's gonna be transparent with you as a user. Now, what it is the very, very positive part of that, the more a company is transparent, the highest the chances the user will give him, the company, a persistent consent, because it's easy to revoke it. But why should, you, should the person revoke it if he's happy with the service? He will not revoke it. He may revoke it if there is a data breach. He may revoke it if he's unhappy with the service. But isn't it the same thing that you do in a shop that gives you a non-good product and you don't go back to buy there because you were not happy? You wouldn't go back to a shop who has been treating you not well or a restaurant which has given you not good food or you bought a car that had spare parts that were not findable after they told you that they were, you, your reaction, your emotion as a person in the real economy shouldn't be different from how in the digital economy, your reaction and your emotions are treated from the company who is serving you. And I conclude, I promise, on the post-cookie world, because <laughs> we're talking about cookie being disappearing, it is not totally true. Cookie will remain there for all the good reasons for which cookie were designed, developed, and are implemented, which are functional cookies. The cookie for tracking are being banned unless the opt-in is confirmed because it's the user to choose if he wants to be tracked. Now, the companies, they must understand that they have to revisit the way they do the consent management modules because until the, it's going to be a B2B relationship on the consent interface, that pops up on a website or pops up, pops up on a mobile interface. And it's designed to serve the business community. It doesn't really look very fair to the users because they've been just worked around. We have to be very careful in the future. People don't like to be worked around. They are humanly reacting to solicitation. Actually, uh, you know, I've, I'm doing a small uh, data privacy audit uh, for one of our uh, startups, uh, Coconut, and because we hold a lot of uh, user data. And, uh, uh, you know, the feedback I got is that we're, we're in a good position uh, in general as, as digital platforms, uh, as you call them. Uh, we have a lot of ways to control what we have. You know, our, our data is in databases uh, that are easy to to access, to restrict, to to uh, you know delete, uh, move, whatever we need to do with them. And most of the problems that uh, are seen are in more traditional or hybrid type of uh, companies, where a lot of the data is in paper files, is in Excel sheets, is in you know this database and that database from two systems that don't talk to each other. So that's quite an interesting uh, you know, uh, fi finding that I had uh, in recent days. But uh, Issa, I will continue with you uh, before uh, jumping again to, to, to TJ. And uh, you know, uh, another, if you want, elephant in the Zoom here is you know, the recent uh, news around US elections and, uh, and the role of, of, of these platforms there. And at the same time, we're saying the government uh, uh, or officials or politicians from one side have to regulate, but from some side are actually using these platforms maybe to influence 
uh, the, the the votes or uh, certain political decisions maybe to and at the same time to regulate those uh, positions and uh, you know we've seen the questioning of uh, the CEO of Twitter uh, and other platforms a few weeks ago at the US Senate about how they're doing this and with which uh, methods they can control the algorithms we've seen also like last week specifically how you know certain tweets uh, particularly from uh, from uh, Donald Trump was being you know flagged that this is not factual that this is uh, uh, you know this is uh, false uh, etc so what's the, how do, how does the uh, we, we've talked about the dilemma of the of the platforms we've talked about the dilemma of the customers uh, the users themselves we've talked about the dilemma of the corporations that use these platforms to reach the end users but what about the dilemma of of government officials and governments themselves. Uh, Alex has to unmute you. This is, this is really the, the most difficult question or thinking or feedback to give you. And I wouldn't want to be in the shoes of any one of those who have been um, listening to the CEOs of these companies when there were the hearings at the Senate and at the Congress to explain that actually they would love to be moderated by someone who would tell them how to moderate it because there's nothing more difficult than moderating content on a communication platform that serves as a media. Um, so I don't think that it was a surprise to anyone uh, to see some of the Trump's tweets to go around because, because this is the way the system works. You can post on the platforms uh, directly without an editorial control and the editorial control comes afterward and uh, who has the right to do it or not to do it. It's an, ex it's an extremely flux situation. Um, the European Commission is pushing out a draft proposal of legislation on this matter. It's um, planned for the beginning of December. Uh, it was due at the beginning of November, but probably there are some fine tunings that were requested. Um, it is a very, very significant piece uh, of law that is going to be tabled for a subsequent um, uh, discussion with the parliament and with the stakeholders as because I see it as the most complex, the most complex one to adopt. And if I was to give a recommendation to these decision makers as to what it is the most important thing to consider is to try to uh, define a law uh, that is applicable to many cases and not just a few cases. It is a very wrong approach to look at the issue of content moderation on gatekeepers as now they have started uh, defining this very large digital platforms that also serve content. And this idea that there is a negative meaning with gatekeeper, it's not exactly uh, the, what it should be. This, this large platforms are doing an extremely immense, valuable um, service to the world that it's giving a right to everyone to express himself and herself. Um, so I would say that I'd be cautious at saying that there is an answer and what it is the right answer, but I know that there are very many significant efforts, not just in Europe, including in Australia, in Canada, in the United States, to come up with something that it's approximated, I wouldn't say harmonized, but approximated that the approach to the moderation and to the how the content is going to be moderated and the how the uh, content can be uh, considered uh, appropriate or not appropriate does not only fall on the shoulders of the platform themselves. 
Understood. Thanks, thanks, Isa. It was a difficult question. TJ, do you have any comments on this before I ask? Yes, you, uh, no, actually, I, I agree with that. I mean, the content moderation, I'm, I'm actually going through this from a business perspective as well and working with clients. It's uh, And uh, it's almost like, can you take the ownership of content moderation? The answer to that is it's a real issue uh, to explain to a client that, you know, um, UGC cannot be content moderated on a millisecond level. Content moderation is a, is a human process and all of it cannot be moderated. There is a judgment call. There is, there are lots of safety filters that can be applied on, um, on the type of content, political sensitivities, uh, you know, hate speech, et cetera. Now, fake news is a difficult one, honestly, because fake news is not deemed fake after such a long time. And the deep fakes are extremely hard to tell. And it's extremely hard to moderate that content on a real-time basis, which is what the issue really is. Like, can you moderate this on a real-time basis before it is developed as fake? And guess what? When you look at the stats, and we do this all the time in content moderation, when you look at the stats, there is a six times greater click-through rates on content that is deeply fake or fake rather than the truth, rather than the net true content. So there is a propensity to develop this kind of drama animation towards the content, and therefore it becomes an issue. This is a spelled issue. I mean, this is something that we are working towards, but judgment and the ability to have that happen from a user's perspective is important. Now, from an advertiser's perspective, it's a catch-22 because you cannot catch this kind of content in real time. And that is the, the reality of the situation. Um, that's point one. Point two is you know, from a political perspective, uh, this, the film talks about this as well, the social dilemma. Can I easily be manipulated? And are is the platform manipulating me? The platform is designed for two things. The, the platform is designed to elicit interest. If you as a user are proactively clicking on something, you're leaning in towards the content. No one's forcing you to lean in towards the content. No one's forcing you to click something. They're teasing you out to see what interests you. And once you start getting activated by that interest, it's a rabbit hole. It continues. Um, the other thing is in doing so, the again, I go back to the algorithms. They're learning something about you, behavioral signals, data signals. They're picking up certain aspects of that from you. So I'm correlating that to, uh, to the political drive and manipulation. I don't think it is the case. I think it is the case that you are being teased to see what you respond to. And if you do indeed click on it out of your own volition, it is something that you're clicking on as well. That, that's my perspective on it. That's uh, very interesting. Uh, and, uh, you know, the role, uh, of course, I mean, as, as a user of technology myself, uh, I'm always struggling with this, like, where do I stop? How do I protect my, not only my data, my sanity, you know, my, my sleep patterns. And then when I have, uh, you know, when I look at my kids and uh, how they're doing that, uh, you know, it goes completely out of control. Um, but this is uh, more now, you know, uh, more accentuated in, in 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 what the next phase is bringing to us. What uh, what everybody likes to call the post-pandemic new normal, I call it business unusual because I don't think it's ever been normal. I don't think it will be normal, 
and it's not going to be business as usual for sure. And uh, the good news that we've been hearing this week is vaccines, 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 uh, which we know will take some time uh, to, to materialize or to, to cover everybody and uh, everywhere. Uh, but at the same time, we've seen from the stock of uh, the stock prices of travel companies, of airlines, of uh, hotels that you know things are looking much better. And already we're 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 hoping to 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 be on the move again. You know, uh, the next big IPO is Airbnb. Everybody is looking at that. So that's that will bring the role of technology again even further. Uh, you know, to the to the foreground, and we're going to see more and more. Uh, a real need of uh, these tracking and uh, tracing apps. Uh, they, 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 were, they, 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 they were brought out uh, as, as concepts, uh, but we were in, in lockdown and most of the world is still in some form of a very geographically restricted lockdown. But as we start uh, really traveling again and going to, to work and uh, for business trips or within the same cities, uh, the importance of uh, of digital in ma managing our contacts is going to become more and more important. Uh, how are we going to to balance that aspect of of privacy, and what 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 do you see happening in practice? Are we going to let go another time, or is there a way to control things? Who'd like to take a step at this one? Uh, it's a very, it's a, another very good question, and it's always bad to um, find ourselves in a contingency situation like the COVID one, with the situation where you don't feel like you have well equipped yourself as a government, as a company, as a consumer, as a regulator, um, as a participant of the so-called digital economy, as to what happens when these hundreds of tracing up are started being used by uh, people because of a very serious reason that is the pandemic. Um, so first of all, there is uh, an element of consideration that uh, even in GDPR, it is conceived that certain data and certain uh, context are allowed, including absent the user consent, uh, express consent, if it is related with um, health, security, and other matters that usually fall under the specific of the sovereign responsibilities of government. And that safety clause was put in there to think of cases where potentially something would happen and it would be needed. Now, of course, there are ways of implementing it. There's the way of keeping it a theoretical, and it's the legal part of the story, but one day you need to implement it at the technology level. And uh, of course, everybody thought that if we were doing it with an app, the app would be released on the stores. The stores allows distribution of the apps instantaneously or almost instant instantaneously across the five billion people on Earth, of which at least three and a half are connected to the Internet. And that it's a very good thing. We have, as Ernie App, we have a little bit a different opinion on this, but it's because we are so particularly fond of the user to choose and the user right to be preserved that even when there is a good reason like the pandemic to fight, it is a bad approach not to give in the tracing app technical requirements the obligation to include settings that would allow the users to delete its own data after these have been used 
and even less to make transparent to the users how the data are going to be used. So it's a, it's a kind of, we are in a contingency, we needed the tracing apps, we released the tracing apps, we needed the help of the two stores, Apple and Google Play, we were in a rush, we did it, and the conclusion, we didn't do it in the right way. Now there are zillions of very sensitive data that are around that no one is in control of other than very few stakeholders who have been not given um, mandatory requirements and rules of engagement with those data. And I cannot tell you how scaring it is this situation. So I would say that if there was anything to look at this, it would be to start thinking of some kind of standardization approach Maybe it's to be a little bit too provocative, but there should be some minimum privacy by design requirements that would not just be a best effort by the business side, but would only be a condition for placing an application in the market that could somehow be a safe harbor for some type of data ultra sensitive to be considered always as a default protected type of data by whoever is going to be the developer who published the application, including for the store itself, including for the operating system. So that, that's the angle uh, we give thanks. to the issue. And in fact, I'm starting to get uh, questions which uh, tie into this uh, on our uh, live feed. So uh, maybe it, I, I, uh, I, I let you answer, uh, give your opinion, TJ, and then I'll tell you what the question is because it ties into, into this. Go ahead. <laughs> My my angle is a little bit different because I'm coming at it from the marketer's uh, you know a mar the marketer's lens. Um, <clears throat> for me, you know the the post pandemic world, the the role of data, the role of technology, the role of apps has seen a completely different change. Because for me, it's thinking about what is the future of uh, shopping, what is the future of uh, consumption, what is the future of retail, um, and how are we going to live in this dystopic or business usual or the new normal or the business unusual world and for me it is again it rests in the utility of the consumer um, we as marketers and brands we have to be responsible we have to share responsible practices but at the end of the day we have to make it easier for uh, the customer and the end user, whoever your target is, if he's a patient, um, if he if he is a supermarket shopper, a retail shopper, a client, a citizen uh, of the, any country, it, the person has to be, um, his needs have to be catered to. And I think there is a trifecta responsibility of government. And I think UAE is doing a fantastic job here as a part of their overall vision to create practices and bylaws and guidelines for consumer protection and privacy. It's getting bigger and bigger. And act the telco, the telco communities are actually the beacon leaders for, for what and how data is supposed to be managed, harvested, monetized, if at all, because they own their data and how it can be responsibly used in the business. The second element to this is um, uh, when we are looking at the future of events, like you said, tracing app, apps, the ability to reach in real time certain, you know, um, highlights, markers, flags, we, we have to be able to understand that, um, you know, when we go to events these days, everything is protected by certain uh, guidelines, uh, uh, you know, COVID compliant guidelines. And I, I believe that um, in this particular case, uh, when we when a responsible party holds events, the the 
the organizer, where it's held, the location, uh, they need to be they need to be the ones who actually protect the not only the environment around them, but uh, the ability to sort of in real time uh, harvest and fund that data. So I have the two different angles here that systematically look, uh, looking at it from a marketing lens. Thanks, DJ. And actually, what I was uh, thinking, you know, when I was talking, is to a certain extent, in fact, maybe sometimes the the bigger, the bigger platforms, uh, and specifically, I think Apple and, and Google in this case, perhaps they have taken a, a step ahead of, of some government by saying, look, look, this is how we, we propose to protect the data. And particularly, Apple is known to be a little bit more focused, or a lot more focused on privacy. Uh, and and uh, that's one of the questions that's coming from from the audiences uh, versus Google and Android being a little bit more uh, open in what uh, how much can be accessed. So uh, on that point, TJ, how do you see brands and, uh, and your clients dealing with that now dichotomy? Because it's not equal anymore. It's two different platforms and two different ways to to deal with it. You need to unmute. Yeah. Uh... So I'll, I'll give you a use case on this one. This is a really interesting question. Uh, with the iOS 14 update, there's a deprecation of certain different uh, ability to track, especially in-app mobile environments. And a lot of clients, especially banks um, and uh, loyalty programs, uh, e-commerce sites, uh, digital shelves, uh, they are apps, right? I mean, the future is super apps. Uh, that's where we research, that's where we spend most of our time. And uh, the concern is the following from brands that I'm going to be able now, how much uh, am I going to lose when I begin to start tracking uh, my customers in app, when I begin to uh, track installs of certain marketing programs to drive value of installations of certain apps on the tracking device? The answer, the verdict is not out yet because um, once we go into 2021 and we lose certain um, attribution qualifications and the way we are able to do our analytics for certain in-app inventories we're able to go we're, we're going to be able to see the de the delta that lies between iOS and um, and the other operating systems that we have uh, Google Android etc and uh, and the point is that we have to see we have to do a little bit of uh, we have to sit back and do a little bit of analysis as what is the consumption ratio of iOS uh, versus Android in the region. And in fact, one of the studies that we're doing right now, I'm on the board of the <clears throat> advertising business group, and we have a committee called cross-media channel measurement. We're actually looking at device level usage in different ecosystems by category to understand the, the far-reaching impact of this uh, new um, of this new systemic change that it will have on on the advertising ecosystem. So again, uh, we have to uh, understand the gravity of the problem before we start running around in circles trying to figure out. Oh my God, there is a problem out there. <clears throat> you know, take uh, take stock of the situation before we land into uncharted territory. Exactly, Isabella, your take on this. I know you have a big. Can I interject a little bit uh, by uh, simplifying? And I apologize for simplifying a little bit too much. But the reality of the fact is that Apple and uh, Android are splitting the world in two, and they're sitting on a very significant ecosystem that, up to very recently, was not even interoperable. If you remember, it was said to the users that once they would 
pass from one operating system to the other, from one device to the other, they would need to re-download the apps because the apps could not be transferred from one store to the other. And then COVID blows and we realize that the two operating systems, they can communicate and become interoperable thank you to Bluetooth. So you may imagine that the two operating systems are not only today sitting on an incredible new amount of data set that comes from the contact tracing app, but they're also essentially exchanging information that are useful for the just two of them and no one else. And this is very worrying because we know how users are in love with applications. We also know that there are no other choices than these two guys and we know that they have very different practices and historic legacies approach to privacy where actually google is making an incredible amount of effort to try to steer up into the where uh, apple is already but apple is also competing with a lot of uh, stakeholders that are gigantic companies where it also compete exactly on the same thing getting the most of the time of users to look at their apps versus a third-party app and because they are putting third-party apps on their own device they need to make sure that the time that it's spent on their app it's more than the time spent on the third-party apps so you also end up having stories between apple and google on the gmaps mapping services because is it better to use the mapping service from apple or is it better to use gmaps on an apple phone well you know all these things are good up to a point where the users don't have any more choice then we really get into the problem so to tie back quickly on apple has a stronger and longer tradition of being strong in privacy it is true up to a certain limit and the what it has announced with ios 14 that is essentially to constrain developers to get the consent of the user for being tracked through the id the id device it is quote unquote, a legitimate implementation of the GDPR, but an abusive behavior from a gatekeeper. Because can you imagine how many developers in the world may not be good, as good as Apple is to get that consent? So the big question here is not really if Apple is better than Google, but what Google and Apple have created that it's called a duopoly, that it's very bad for everyone else who is not able to control that technology stack. Understood. Thanks, uh, Isa. So uh, it's very interesting because I think, uh, you know, we're also reaching like a loop in the narrative here. From one perspective, uh, you know, we see that, uh, uh, you know, the platforms have a role to play. And then, and then it's all platforms. Yes, you mentioned through uh, Google and, uh, and, and Apple. But at the end of the day, even the, the start of my discussion was talking about the social dilemma, which comes on Netflix, which, by the way, is one of the best at uh, really harvesting, uh, you know, uh, and using artificial intelligence and serving me the, the, the stuff that I would like to see. And at the same time, also providing that little uh, dopamine kick and that little addict addictive, uh, uh, you know, behavior of, you know, binging on a series. In fact, I heard a few years ago, maybe, that uh, the sound of the Netflix uh, logo and animated logo of Netflix and goes down and signals that something is starting, brings us all a little bit of, uh, of joy when we hear it because we know something good is, is going to come after that. So it's quite interesting that it's looping uh, 
looping itself. And I want to, to maybe uh, try to end on a positive note and uh, open the door for more discussions. The three of us, you know, uh, we can always have uh, more time to talk uh, about uh, these things and other matters. But I like also the fact that, you know, on Netflix, I watched in the same week uh, the recently released uh, documentary by uh, Sir David Attenborough, the My Life on Earth. And at the same time as he did it on Netflix, which treats probably millions, uh, hundreds of millions of people, he went live on, on with an Instagram account who within less than a few hours had already six, seven million followers. I don't know uh, how much uh, he has right now. So it's also a very strong force of good of, uh, you know, spreading information and hopefully making a difference on our lives and on the life of the planet. So in, you know, in a minute or 30 seconds, each of you, your last kind of uh, positive and uh, hopeful words about how we can use technology for good, what's coming next. And then, you know, we'll uh, we'll say goodbye until we meet again. Um, would like to start, TJ. Yep, I'll go first. So I have a I have a very consumer focused view on this. And I think that, um, you know, choice, uh, judgment and utility are at the heart of what I believe is the role of uh, media. Technology always has been and will be an enabler. Uh, the guidelines can be regulatory, they can be commercial, they can be development focused, but uh, whatever they are, they have to serve a need uh, and protect the final user uh, at the end of the day. And as long as we keep to those guiding principles and uh, the idea of general value creation, keeping purpose and human ingenuity at the heart of the equation, I don't think we'll have a problem seeing the right side of where we need to head with uh, both those uh, key components of channels and technology as well as consumer protection um, in mind. Thanks, TJ. Isabella, what's your view on that? I have, um, I have to say that I espouse quite a lot what uh, TJ said about having a very um, user-centric, consumer perspective-centric. I would say that on top of that, I have a very human-centric approach to this. I think that um, we have a fantastic knowledge to move from the connected society through the information society to the knowledge society. In this particular moment, the world is divided between few companies with lots of technology, lots of knowledge, and the rest of the world has a little bit, a lot a lot of the technology, but less the knowledge of how that technology can actually impact the society, the life, and everyone's single day. If we lift up that knowledge uh, as part of the foundation of the society, of the, of the human being society, I think technology is the greatest invention on earth because it's, it can be inclusive and it can serve both the business side and the people side because people is about enjoying business and business is about making happy consumers so i would like to see it as a very positive lift up strategy where companies take responsibility not just to comply with consumer protection but making the connected society more inclusive and participative in term of revenue sharing in term of discovery sharing in term of innovation sharing i'm not talking about scattering around the results of what the innovation is which is the presumed subject of i'm not going to be investing in great things if i have to share it with everybody which is a little bit of story between the us and europe as are you more protecting consumers or are you more protecting companies that need to make consumers happy i think we should be distancing ourselves from that and start thinking that technology is an enabler business needs the data 
and consumer produce the data and there must be a new way for consumer and business to have a relationship about that where the government stay on the side and it's not mixing it up but it's just gardening that things happen right so i see it very positive because because it's about people and companies and consumer and companies and customer and companies absolutely and as i posted recently one very good slogan from a big tech company uh, that I used to work for and I love it a lot, Ericsson, it's all about communication between people. The rest is technology. So we want to communicate, we want to post that update, we want to be delighted by seeing somebody else's update and the convenience of using a stack, but at the same time we need, uh, you know, these basic uh, protective uh, measures or, uh, you know, rights to be actually uh, kept uh, in place and in check. Thank you very much, uh, ladies. It was a pleasure to have you. Thanks a lot for joining me, both of you. I'd like to thank uh, our listeners for tuning in and listening to us live or in the recording over the podcast channel later on. I really hope you enjoyed our discussion. Uh, Isa and TJ have uh, given us wonderful insights. We've talked about everything. We've talked about corporate. We've talked about government. We've talked about tech and users and movies. And, uh, you know, if you didn't get the chance to ask your questions uh, live, feel free to ping us on our social media channel. We are all on LinkedIn. Some of us are on Twitter and Instagram as well. You will find us. LinkedIn is a good way to you know, keep this discussion going. And please feel free to send me more ideas and uh, topics to discuss on the podcast in the next episodes of Wireless Viewers. Thank you very much.